Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Uh, in this episode, I'm very happy to bring the conversation I had with Lionel Page. Uh, Lionel is a professor in economics at the School of Economics at University of Queensland in Australia. Uh, he's an economist by training and he's mostly interested in decision making, whether it's individually or in groups. Um, he uses a lot of the academic theory, such as theory of decision and game theory and many other uh, behavioral sciences. He is the author of the book, Optimally Irrational, which is out now everywhere. And uh, that's what we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about uh, an overview of behavioral economics, um, but not just an overview, also somewhat of a history of, you know, what was economics up to for, for many decades? And then, you know, behaviorism and psychology and sociology, they were doing their own thing and how there was a kind of, um, you know, happy collision here of, of, of worlds and ideas. And, and we get behavior economics. We talk about uh, Kahneman Tversky and prospect theory. We talk about the evolutionary framework for understanding behavioral economics, which is deeply fascinating. One of my favorite parts in his book we talk about heuristics and cognitive biases, uh, gains and losses and mistakes. We obviously talk about game theory and Nash equilibrium. Um, and we also talk about the impact of cooperation, the role of beliefs, uh, and many other topics. I really uh, had a, a great time talking with Leonel. He's a, he's a great person to um, – have a wonderful conversation with, um, and he's, as he does in his book, and as you'll hear in the conversation, he has a way of explaining economic uh, theories and ideas, but in a way that's really, uh, I think, digestible for most people to understand and to get and to see the important uh, pragmatics of it, uh, along with this kind of intersection and overlap with um, behaviorism and psychology, which is which is really nice. It's, it's always a a wonderful thing to see when people are kind of doing that kind of multi-disciplinary uh, way of of, of studying and, and, and researching data. Um, as always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at my free Substack, convergingdialogues.substack.com. Subscribe, uh, share widely. I'm also on YouTube. You can follow me there. Share widely as well. And uh, yeah, now I bring you Leonel Page. I am here with Lionel Page. Lionel, how's it going? Fine. Thank you very much for the invitation. Of course, of course. Uh, you have you have written a, a wonderful book called "Optimally Irrational: The Good Reasons uh, We Behave the Way We Do," which is great. I think this is through Cambridge University Press, um, and it's a it's a fantastic book. And I want to talk to you about all the big themes. And so, uh, before before we get there, why don't you tell listeners uh, who you are? Uh, what your background's in and what you currently, you know, study and research and all those wonderful things. Right. So I'm Lionel Page, uh, in French, as you said, Lionel Page. Uh, so I'm born in France and uh, I was uh, studied economics. I'm an economist uh, and I'm interested in the in behavioral economics, which is uh, the thing at the border between economics and psychology, where economists uh, study how people behave in the real life, not just in their uh, abstract models. Um so I've been working for 20 years in this area, uh, moved to Australia. So now I'm in Australia and at the University of Queensland. And 
Um, having worked in this area for quite some time, um, I wrote this book to um, provide maybe a perspective which I think has been missing over the, over the time in behavioral economics. There has been a lot of focus on how people make mistakes. I think that's a big contribution of behavioral economics, which is compared to old style economics where people were super rational, making very good decisions. Uh, there have been a huge emphasis on showing that people often make mistakes and 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 how it can help them. And so, I wanted to write this book to um, to argue that yeah, we we make mistakes, but I think uh, uh, we shouldn't go, we shouldn't push this narrative too far. I mean, you know, if we are here. It means that our ancestors were not too unsuccessful at making decisions, and so um, a lot of there's a risk that a lot of things that we think are mistakes are actually good solutions to the problems that we face. And so that's the angle of the book is to to go through uh, the wide range of results from behavioral economics and arguing that often a lot of the puzzling behavior that we observe are are, are good solutions once you ask the right questions. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think that. <clears throat> much of um economics from my uh, very uh ignorant way of looking at it is is that uh economics does a lot of uh, psychology and, and behaviorism and understanding people and systems and markets and how people are going to predict to, to do things or not and and so i think it's it's nice that we have this field so maybe could you just two things here could you just chat a little bit about this field of behavioral economics and, and why you think it's important now of this kind of crossroads of different disciplines? And what's some of the, I guess, uh, I guess historically, it's some of the conflict between psychology, probably social psych and, uh, uh, to be specific, and economics and why there was this conflict and maybe how behavioral economics kind of tries to marry those two things? Yeah, so it's a big question. So, you know, our, our progress and you can... You can ask me or, or cut me and ask yeah. a few questions because it's a big topic, I guess. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, maybe a few listeners may be a bit surprised when we say that economics is about looking at decisions and there, there is a, a relationship between economics and psychology uh, because maybe a few people think that when, when you hear the word economics, it's about banking, GDP, inflation, and this mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly a part of economics, but economics from the start was a science interest in decisions, like how you allocate resources. You could think of household decisions, but government decisions, it's, you know, once you have uh, goals, uh, it could be the government goals, but it could be your goals. You know, what do you do in your career? Do you go to look for, to work at the university or to study at the university? Do you go to get a job? Um, do you invest in risky uh, things or do you save your money uh, in safe things? So all that are about decisions. So, Economists from the start were really interested in decisions. And when you look at decisions, you have, you know, there's two things you can do. You can first look at how people make decisions. And here you're right away in psychology. And the other thing you can do is to um, uh, try to understand what, how people should behave. You can, you know, if you want to make the right decisions, what should you do? And so you may have a tension here because people may not necessarily do what they should do. Right? And that's, that's, this tension is at the heart of economics. And what you have, what happened in the history of economics is that if you look at the 19th century, so we go back a while back, you know, economists who, uh, uh, what we call the marginal revolution, you've got a blog called the marginal revolution. So that's, mm -hmm. it was impactful, mm -hmm. uh, in the story of economics. Economists at the time were really interested in psychology and they, they thought, you know, people, the main goal of what people are following is to try to have satisfaction. 
Okay, so uh, what you look for, you know, you work for to get a promotion because you feel that makes you happy. You uh, take a job in California versus, you know, instead of uh, Chicago because there is more sun and you think you'll be happier with more sun in California. Mm-hmm. So the, the, at that time, economists were really interested in psychology. Uh, but there was something at the start of the 20th century, this, uh, what's called the, the positivist movement across sciences, where... Uh, a lot of um, philosophers and scientists put, you know, if you want to do a science, you have to, to do a science which is based on things which can be measured and observables, right? You, you, there was a kind of pushback against metaphysics and abstract discussions where you can't, you know, kind of measure, like observe facts. Uh, and that has a, had a huge impact in economics. That is, uh, at the time, you can imagine that 19th century or early 20th century, um, what is satisfaction? You know, can you measure satisfaction? Can, can, you know, we didn't have fMRIs. We didn't have like, you know, uh, neuroscience tools to go and peer in the brain. And so a lot of economists were unsatisfied. They say we, we can't build a science, uh, based on assumptions about mental states because mental states are unobservable. So that's, we're just going to talk about things which can't be tested. Uh, we can't do experiment, etc. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was a, a key movement in economics to say we're only going to base our uh, um, approach to what we can observe. And what we can observe, I mean, one thing we can observe are choices. So, uh, you know, if I uh, see you as an economic agent, maybe I don't observe your satisfaction in your head. But if I choose, see you choosing maybe, you know, a, a black car instead of a white car, then I can say, okay, I don't know what's in your head, but I can say that you made that choice. And, and then I can I can start looking at um, maybe having a theory about how people make decisions and, and trying to test it by just observing the decisions of people. Mm-hmm. And so you had in economics from the early 20th century to really the end of the 20th century, a kind of divorce with psychology. So the psychologist is the economist in a way expelled psychology from, from economics. Uh and, and economics became very formal with models about not necessarily about how people behave, but how they should behave if they are quote unquote rational. Uh, and so, if anybody who has done a bit of economics would have um, um, heard the word rational. And what economists meant by rational is that they would assume that somebody, uh, a, a decision maker, a person making decisions, would know what he or she wants. Uh, that these desires are consistent. So, you know, you don't desire things which are inconsistent and which are in conflict. So it makes sense what you want. Uh, uh, Let's say, for example, you know, maybe if you're ambitious um, uh, and you want to be promoted, then you're not going to go on a holiday uh, and spending all your time on a cruise ship and not working. You know, that that would not be consistent. I want to do that, but what you do is is not going to be conducive to getting what you want. So that would be inconsistent. So you know what you want. What you want is consistent and you do the right thing to get what you want. So that's the kind of key ideas. And, and economists use kind of a mathematical framework to put that into, a, uh, to, to make predictions about what, what people would do. And because it uses mathematics, a nice thing is that it, you can have formal models when you um, uh, make predictions, not necessarily that you observe them, but, but at least you, know, you can say something. Uh, but that's one of the advantages of using mathematics. So now, there was this divorce, uh, but in a way there was a tension because we, if you look at how people make decisions and you make assumptions about how people make decisions, the natural question is like, why don't you look at whether how people, you know, whether how people behave 
is consistent or is, is similar to your predictions. And so you have this, this move where people, economists went away from psychology, but in a way, psychologists caught up with them. Uh, and so in the 50s, some psychologists, uh, one in particular who started this movement, his name is Ward Edwards. Uh, he was a son of an economist. And he said, well, you know, these economists out there, they're having a lot of assumptions about behavior. Very interesting assumptions. And you know what? We should we should test them. So let's let's take people in, in rooms and economists say that when people make decisions, they have this kind of beautiful theories, which are uh, mathematically uh, you know, written mathematics about how people make consistent decisions. Let's ask people in these very simplified situations, uh, you know, whether they behave exactly like the economic predictions. And as you know, you would know, and I guess anybody who has looked into behavioral economics uh, uh, knows, uh, well, people don't. So that was the thing, that economists had built a kind of beautiful architecture about rational decision-making, where people um, um, are very good at making decisions which are consistent, et cetera. But when you ask people the kind of what we call like anomalies or, or deviations from the predictions were like just accumulating. And so there was this kind of discussion and, and, and from what it was, one was of the um, um, supervisor of Amos Tversky, who was one of the co-author of Kahneman. And so Kahneman and Tversky started very early, I think, was, you know, from that time and, and, and onward, a collaboration. Tversky was a mathematically minded psychologist and Kahneman was a social psychologist. And they accumulated a wealth of evidence. You know, they kind of, you have these economists in their ivory tower with these beautiful models, not looking at data. And the psychologists were, were outside, you know, just throwing evidence. And the economists were initially like, well, I don't know. Yeah, you, you find deviations, but all models are true. So maybe people don't do it all the time, but that should be the truth. But eventually, the, the evidence accumulated by psychologists just was too much. Uh, and so there was this uh, paper in 79, very um, now one of the most influential paper in economics, uh, the paper by Kahneman and Versky in Econetrica. And, and that was super influential. And then progressively from then on, um, behavioral economics is the movement by which this criticism from psychology came back in economics. And eventually economists took them on board. So, you know, now behavioral economics is not, it's just one natural part of doing economics. There was this kind of, period of divorce between economics and psychology and i guess now we are reunited that's if i would try to be very broad and quick that's the way I would yeah, that's, uh, no, that's great that's great i mean i was i was definitely going to ask you about uh kahneman tversky but I, I think yes i think that that's i think that's right is that obviously in the in the in the late 50s in the 60s you know behaviorism had its big you know like big big boon right it was that was the whole thing and you know we've you know kind of uh, seen some of the um you know, negative aspects of only doing behaviorism. However, I mean, much of behaviorism is still used today clinically. It's used in economics. It's used in so it's used in in many many uh, avenues, which is which I think is is really really powerful. So t tell us that you, since you brought it up, I was going to ask you anyway. So about uh, Kahneman Tversky. I mean, obviously Kahneman won the Nobel Prize. Um, Funnily, it was, you know, he, he was a psychologist that won a Nobel Prize in economics, which is, you know, I mean, I think always hilarious, right? You know, he's, <laughs> he didn't win it for anything psychological per se in the truest, pure form, if you will. It was in economics, which, but I mean, 
it was tremendous. Um, and I don't know if it's from this 79 paper or if that was part of it, but he, he had this prospect theory and how this really is a springboard for behavioral economics. So could chat about the, the theory and, and I guess the landmark paper and, and, and that contribution, why it's still useful. Yeah, so, you know, one interesting aspect of prospect theory and, and Kahneman versus work is how successful it has been. They were not the only one criticizing. So, you know, when you look at the psychological literature, uh, the fact that the economic assumptions were a bit unrealistic, uh, a lot of people were saying that, right? So they were not the only one. Uh, in economics, you had Herbert Simon uh, in yeah. the 50s saying that, it, and you got an overprice. Uh, but in, if you look now, now you know, Herbert Simons, even if people respect a lot of his work, his work didn't have, doesn't have, has not have had the legacy of Kahneman Versky. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you look at other places in psychology, you'd have a lot of psychologists who looked at people making decisions and making mistakes. But uh, these works have not had as much impact in economics. Uh, and I guess there's two, I think there's one main reason, but there's two main big qualities in Kahneman and Versky's work. First is that they, they really, you know, you have this cliche that you, 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 you know, scientists uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. What, what, what they did is, you know, it's easy to forget that the work presented in their 79 paper or even in their previous, they have a famous paper in science in 74. It's not just their work, really. So, so what they do, they, really accumulated a lot of the previous evidence, synthesized a lot of the intuitions. And, you know, some of the key ideas that that we associate with prospect theory, like, and we may talk about it further afterwards, but like the fact that we have, uh, you know, um, a subjective satisfaction which depends on, on the losses and on the gains, um, or the fact that when we make decisions, risky decisions, we we may treat uh, probabilities a bit differently, whether there are big a high, large probabilities or small probabilities. Like uh, one key insight is that we may tend to overweight small probabilities. So if I tell you, you know, do you want to, if I give you a lottery ticket when you have chance in a million or yeah, one chance in a million to 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 win a few millions, um, you know, what is this one chance in a million? You may you may behave as if it's bigger than just one chance in a million because in our brain, you know, one chance in a million, it's hard to you can you can picture the million dollars that you could get. Uh, and that may uh, you may behave as if you were overweighting this one chance in a million. But these key insights, you know, they were um, uh, present before. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that you remove, you know, credits to Kahneman Versky, but in a way, they they, they gather these insights into, into a framework which is coherent, which is simple. And and the key thing is that with a, a small mathematical model, then this model they can give it to the economist, and the economist they, they have these. Um, a beautiful mathematical architecture about to try to model how people make behavior. And, and the economists interested in psychology in a way they could often just take the Kahneman and Versky model and replace their traditional model with the Kahneman and Versky model and then continue playing with it. You know, and if you know a bit of sociology of science, you know, what's a scientist? A scientist needs to produce papers and needs to write studies. So if you come and you tell the scientist your model is wrong, but you don't propose a solution, like so scientists says, okay, my models may be wrong, but that's the only thing I know how um, that I can do. And so you're not going to change the behavior or the theory. And the key thing in Kahneman and Versky's uh, paper is that they were proposing a very simple model that economists could use 
And so that could change the practice of economics. And, you know, that's the key difference with Herbert Simon, for instance, because Simon had very interesting ideas, but he didn't have, um, uh, he didn't, uh, you know, propose tools which very quickly could be um, uh, replacing the tools of, of economists. Yeah, I think that that's, many times it's with things like that, people will collect things that have been there, certain ideas, <clears throat> certain papers, and then they, they put it together in something that's cohesive, that's then tangible. I mean, obviously, I don't have to say this, but so many people that are in academics, they just can't put it in a space where people can use it well for everyday things. It might work for academia or it might work in some uh, circles, but it's how do we apply this you know, throughout different domains. And that gives it more power, especially if the idea and the theory and the science behind it is good. And so I think that's, I mean, a, a big, big thing about Kahneman and Tversky. You introduce also in the in the first part of the book, uh, an evolutionary perspective, which is very interesting, right? And I was, I was very excited to, to read this. And so how do you, how do you feel or how do you understand, I should say, how un understanding evolution and evolutionary framework you know, helps us to understand many things from behavioral for for behavioral economics. Some of the things you discuss are biological constraints, incremental optimization, spandrels. So, so maybe you can talk about some of those things, or 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 not. But um, just generally, how does an evolutionary framework help us understand behavioral economics? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I said initially, I wrote this book because I thought that, um, you know, when I started behavioral economics, I I started as when I was a student, the, the classical approach of economics was still pretty dominant. Um, and I was on the, you know, I was thinking these assumptions about people being super rational, et cetera, are unrealistic. And so I was really interested in looking how people really behave. But over the years, behavioral economics has, you know, how things go like in, in science, it's not, it's, you have kind of fashionable, fashion um, trends, uh, fashionable trends. And so, you know, initially behavioral economics is ignored, and then while I was a, a, a became an economist, behavioral economics became very popular to the point where you know everybody thinks it's fantastic. And then some of the claims uh, and the focus of behavioral economics uh, were not too challenged anymore. Before they were ignored, then they become popular, and then you stop challenging them because it's like everybody thinks it's great. And because behavioral economics was built by this kind of you know. Uh, movement of psychologists pushing against the model of, of uh, perfect rationality of standard economics. Uh, this push was about, there was a big focus on making mistakes. So a big focus on the psychology was to, to show to the economists that their assumptions were wrong and that people are much, are not as good as making decisions than we should. So that, you know, you have this push, uh, which is totally understandable. But a risk of, you know, once behavioral economics has become is has been successful, that we continue this push, and you know, um, a bit too far. Uh, and so, I've, I've, for a few years, I was a bit, maybe a bit frustrated uh, when the only way we we describe what we do as behavioral economists is to show that people make mistakes. Uh, because as scientists, you know, saying that people are quote unquote irrational, uh, and you would find newspapers saying what is behavioral economics? Behavioral economics is uh, the fact that we have shown that people are irrational, but but that that's not an explanation, you know. Uh, a science, a behavioral science, should be about explaining what people do and why they do things, and saying that people are inconsistent or make mistakes 
it's it's gonna be the end of 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 the the discipline. So I was a bit frustrated, and uh, um, a key reasons why you know we can't be so bad at making mistakes is that we're here in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, Richard Dawkins has this uh, expression, you know, in one of his books. He says, "If we're here, is that we are at the end of a, a long series of ancestors who all of them have been successful." In a, in a, in the world, and we're not talking about just your, your human ancestor, but you could do your you know mammals ancestors and and mm-hmm. and, and et cetera, et cetera. And the world out there, you know, is a tough one. So um, organisms have to find energy to survive, to avoid prey, and to find mates uh, when they're when they're sexual reproduction. So you know these all these organisms and all these line of organisms which have been successful, and we're just at the end, um, you know. These line of organisms have made consistently decisions through their lives, which ended up them being successful enough to survive and reproduce. And so it would be surprising if all that leads us to be systematically flawed in very important ways, um, you know, ways that nature wouldn't find a way to adjust. So we may not be perfect, uh, but in a way, you know, by just by um, approximation, uh, we should not be too bad. So when you once you take this evolutionary perspective, it, it leads you naturally to question uh, a, a push which is too much about a focus on us making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I, I should, to be to be fair to Kahneman and Versky and to many people, many psychologists interested who initiated behavioral economics, they were not against evolutionary explanations. Like you, um, you take in the seventy-nine Kahneman and Versky paper, they mention evolution. They think that. You know, the theory is compatible with evolution. But what we, we have had in the field is that by design of this field pushing against rationality, we have this move, you know, focusing on the defects, the defaults and the problems of decision-making. So I guess this book, I mean, over the last few years, there's a growing interest in economics in, you know, adaptive explanations, pushing back the pendulum in the other direction because, you know, it's been way too far in terms of, us being very poor at making decisions. And so the book goes through all the behavioral economics literature and shows how often a uh, lot of what we may think as defects are not defects. They can be good solutions. Mm-hmm. And not all the times, but often um, a way to show that there are good solutions is to take an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and an evolutionary perspective tells you, you know, if uh ancestors had to solve a kind of pro- problem for for a long time what would be the kind of behavior given the constraints which are there it could be biological constraint could be that you know our brain is limited you don't have an infinite number of neurons for instance mm-hmm. given this constraint what would be a, a good solution which allows allowed ancestors to survive and and to and to and to and to reproduce and so this evolutionary perspective i think help us kind of uh being a bit critical to this over-focus on, on mistakes. And so that's, I guess, we can talk more about that, but that, that's the initial, uh, the initial angle uh, that I take. Mm, yeah. No, I think, I think it's important because it's, it's looking at, uh, in a long history of, of our humanity, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to solve problems, right, in novel situations. And we are also trying to, develop and to derive meaning from them right and so understanding a long history of things not just you know in 
you know, the 21st century or in the 20th century, but what is the, I guess you could say patterns and how we are or are not making mistakes or how we're able to work with them is an important lens to put on, on, um, you know, the decisions or behaviors that we're, we're making. So I, I want to ask about gains, losses, reference points. You mentioned those a little bit earlier. Before we do that, though, you, you talk about uh, some of the heuristics. So people may be familiar with this, cognitive biases, uh, major heuristics. Um, and so you can just kind of, you know, set that up how you want. Um, I guess two questions I have is how do we understand where heuristics are important for behavioral economics and how can we understand heuristics positively? Much of the time we understand heuristics negatively, right? There's the, you know, heuristics are these mental shortcuts we make. It's a way of breaking down processing so we don't have to do this whole long thing every time. We just use these good, you know, kind of short mental shortcuts. But a lot of the times they lead us to so many errors. We we make assumptions. We rely on stereotypes. It, it, you know, it's a mess. And But that's usually how people talk about it. Um, but there are also ways in which it could be positive, as you described. So there's the availability. There's representat- representativeness. There's... Um, uh, what's the other one? There's like th- four major ones. I mean, there's a bunch, but there's four major ones. I'm forgetting the, the ones. Um, yeah. the simulation one, the anchoring, and um, whatever the other one is. Anyways, the point is, is that there's all of these different ones that we use, and so it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we see them in in positive ways, not just negative? And how does this help uh, on the behavioral economic side of things for making good decisions? Look, excellent question. I think so. Heuristics maybe for. You know, the listeners who um, are not necessarily familiar, it comes from a Greek uh, term, and it means a simple rule. Um, and so the idea of heuristics is that, you know, in the world, we may face complex decisions, uh, complex problems, but sometimes simple rules can help you, you know, navigate complex problems mm-hmm. pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I want to give, give you a very intuitive thing, is like, you know, I guess most of listeners would know how to be on a bicycle. Um, but the physics of a bicycle, like standing on a bicycle, is actually very complex. So if you oh, yeah. were an engineer trying to design a robot going on a bicycle, uh, that is tricky. You have to solve very complex equations. But obviously, when you and me, we are on a bicycle, we're not solving consciously complex equations. We, we must have like simple rules about adjusting you know, our balance depending on whether we form one side or the other, et cetera, uh, in a way which approximates the solution. So we're not solving the complex equations to find the exact solution, but we have these simple rules of adjustments which allows us to you know, stay standing on the bicycle. And in, in our global life, in, uh, we face very complex problems all the time. Um, I think it's, it's easy to underestimate or underappreciate how complex the problems we face. Like, um, even for simple things like moving your arm and brightening something, like if you were to design a robot to do that, uh, that is to treat the visual stimulus uh, and decide how to, you know, give the information to your arm to grab a glass and not to make it fall, etc. These are very complex problems. And one way to appreciate how complex they are is when you see little kids. You know, you've got a if you get a uh, a kid of one or two year old, you see that this kid is going to struggle to grab a glass of water without spilling it, etc. And basically, it will take several months, several years to train the brain to adjust progressively, you know, to get the right parameters to do these things, which is very simple for us now, but just to learn how to do it. And so, in in our life, we have very complex problems to to solve, 
And the idea of heuristics is that often we, by following the very simple rules, we're going to do pretty well and we're going to be pretty quick at solving them. And you can think that speed is important uh, because if you're not fast enough, either, you know, maybe uh, you can be the prey of, uh, you know, of, of uh, animals who want to eat you, for instance, or maybe other people are going to make the decision before you and you're going to lose opportunities. So speed is important. And having heuristics may be a, may be a, a good solution to uh, instead of spending too much time trying to solve problems. So you're right that once you start saying that, you have you, you can focus on the positive or the negative aspect of heuristics. So the, the positive aspect is this kind of heuristics are solutions, uh, which help you to be fast and which are cheap in a way that you know you don't need to expend a lot of cognitive resources to use these small rules, these quick rules. That's a, a view which has been heavily um, defended, for instance, by the psychologist Gerd Gigerander, uh, called that fast and frugal heuristics. And the idea that they've been selected by evolutions for us to very quickly find um, the right solutions. Uh, the other way of like the negative aspect is to say, well, okay, you know, the heuristics are going to be good most of the time. That's why they exist. But there's a price to pay. So, you know, if you're not following, if you're not finding the perfect solution, well, there will be a, a range of situations, maybe not the most frequent, but a range of situations where you're going to make mistakes. And so using heuristics is going to lead to systematic mistakes. And, and obviously, the school of Kahneman and Versky, while actually agreeing in a way with Gigerenzer about the evolutionary nature of heuristics, really focused on the mistakes. And as I said before, it's because the, this area of research was kind of you know designed as this kind of um, uh, maybe fight is a big word but this kind of criticism of economics so you know they wanted to there's no point to focus on how good we are taking decisions when what we want to try is convince economists that we're not that good so you have this 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 tension between even from psychology between Gerd Gigerzer focusing on on the usefulness of heuristics and Kahneman and Versky focusing on the, the mistakes. And so they had this paper in Science in 74 when they review four um, um, heuristics. And each time they show with a lot of experiment how if you follow these heuristics, you are going to make mistakes, systematic mistakes. Uh, so that was a that was a big part of really the early behavioral economics. I would say now that nowadays if you were to go in seminars of research in behavioral economics, um, I think we don't focus so much about heuristics anymore. And it's not that we criticize the idea. I think the, the interest of the field of behavioral economics has moved a bit away from the focus on, on heuristics. Um, but historically, it was really a big thing uh, in the history of behavioral economics. Yeah, so with that in mind, how do we then understand um you know, gains and losses. You mentioned uh, Bernoulli's error. Am I saying this right? And uh, and then you talk about reference points and the role of peer pressure. Kind of introduce these concepts in the framework in which you're trying to understand of how we're making good decisions and how we're weighing certain things to determine what we want to do or not want to do. Yeah, so... Kahneman and Versky's contribution, there are two, these two big papers. So Science 74 paper with the heuristics and biases. And the 79 paper, which is published in Econometrica, which is one of the most prestigious economic journals and very quantitative journal. In the Econometrica paper, they don't focus so much on heuristics on this, what you know, is called prospect theory. 
And his perspective raises a few key assumptions deviating from the core ideas of economists, uh, of, of uh, how economics fooled by decision making. Uh, the first one is about so if I was to say subjective satisfaction, you know, economists would be economists at the time at least would be um disagreeing firstly, because as I said, you know, they, they expelled psychology. So they had a, a definition of utility, uh, which was devoid of psychology. So you could, economists were going to talk about utility function, but, uh, and ut- people try to maximize utility, uh, in a way that I'm not sure, even sure they would have said that exactly, but, but they would say that people make decisions which maximize utility, but this utility didn't have any psychological content. It, it they didn't want to, Associate utility with satisfaction. So it's a bit, it's a bit now, nowadays maybe it's a bit abstract, but but that was the key. But I think if we if we if we uh, discount that for a minute, and if we say okay, let's call utility satisfaction. Uh, the key idea from Kano and Versky here is that when you when you consider what makes what it creates subjective satisfaction, it is not uh, the total amount of what you have. So let's say you know if you're a billionaire. Uh, you know, you're not waking up every morning thinking, oh, I'm very happy because I'm a billionaire. And so, you know, uh, as a consequence, you, you should be like pretty much always happy the same way because every morning, you know, you're pretty much the same kind of, you're worth pretty much the same. In fact, you'll probably be more stressed. I mean, it's extremely a full-time job to manage billions of dollars. It's absolutely almost, it's almost not possible for a single human to manage billions of dollars, much less millions of dollars, actually. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I, I once heard an interview of a psychologist for, uh, you know, very rich people. Yeah. And you were saying, it's amazing how a lot of, there's a lot of frustration and mm-hmm. unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, people may think, why are they unhappy? You know, I would like to be them. But once you, as you say, once you are them, like you have all the problems. Like, um, Yeah, you don't just have that sitting in a savings account. You, that money has to be active and it has to be used and invested and moved around and and when you're just having that scale of funds and then the risks become so much bigger at an individual level. And then if you have other individuals or if you have other businesses or you have other things or different types of wealth, it's a mess. It's a full-time job. It's, it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and the key idea from kind of to understand why they're actually not so happy. And because you, 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 you know, listeners may, may think, well, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's wrong. They should feel happy. Whatever the thing is wrong. But it's, it's basic point of human psychology made by Kerman Versky is that our subjective satisfaction is, is determined by a reference point. So we have a reference point and we could talk about how it is determined. But if to start with, we just assume that the reference point is, is your current situation. So you get used to your current situation. And then every morning, you know, every, at the end of every day, you get happy or unhappy if, you know, your situation improved. Or if, you, or if you're, you get unhappy if your situation uh, went worse. So if you're a billionaire and, you know, uh, you learn that your wealth has not changed, but uh, this other billionaire suddenly has taken, has, is over you in the list of uh, Forbes, rich list of the richest people in the world, well, you may feel bad about your day, even though, you know, you're, you're still very rich. So the key thing is that you must have a reference point and then, uh, if things are getting better, you feel good. If things are getting worse, you feel bad. And this is going to determine a plenty of decisions you are going to make. Uh, so that's a key idea from, from prospect theory. Mm. 
So where do we have, again, so where, where do we have this idea of trying to understand where, like, so for example, when we're trying to make a decision, it's something you talk about in, in the book, what's the optimal amount of information that you have to acquire before making a decision, right? Where We're going to make mistakes, obviously. That happens every day. And we have to factor them in, right? There is some aspect of factoring in mistakes, however we do that, and also factoring in randomness and all these other things. So how do we understand the right amount of information to make mistakes and then factoring in all of these other things, almost the things we can't plan, such as mistakes or randomness or or other things that are, um, you know, in our environment? Yeah, I think the the key is, the key idea that we make mistakes and that mistakes are unavoidable i think it's a it's a key uh perspective to understand a lot of the biases that lots of what looks like biases or or strange behaviors um and maybe before i i go into how much information how many uh, how much information we should get uh this i could even say that the fact that we have this reaction to gains and losses uh, uh can be seen and can be explained as the fact that uh, we are going to make mistakes. So if you want to, um, and let's say you are going to make mistakes in terms, in terms of, if I give you different choices every day, like I could be telling you, oh, uh, here are two job offers. Which one do you want to take? So the job offers will have different uh, characteristics. Maybe one is you have to move in a city which you don't like so much, but the, the wage is higher, etc. So you have to consider which job to take. And your brain is going to try to assess the values of these two things. Uh, but, you know, you may, as you process information, you may, there is, there's a cost of processing information. And then we can't assume that your brain is going to make perfect decisions, like perfectly zoom in on, you yeah. know, prediction yeah. of what job is going to be better. Right. So if you make mistakes in a way, you want your perception, your ability to discriminate between options to be the sharpest in, in the range of options that you're likely to face today. And so, this simple idea explains why you should have your subjective satisfaction should basically be uh, follow a kind of S shape centered around what you have now, okay, such that your your perception about whether you're more happy or less happy is very steep uh, across changes across the situation that you face now. So, given what you have now, you need to be very sensible to improvements, gains, and to losses. Uh, going down, and that will help you make decisions in the range of situations that you're going to face. Okay, this very simple idea explains the uh, S shape from prospect theory as a way to minimize errors, errors that you're going to face. Um, so that's the first thing, which is a, which is a very interesting way of explaining uh, why we have this uh, S shape uh, from prospect theory. And then you, you ask another question: Is how much information should you take? So in the old classical economics, one of the assumptions, often the assumption was that information is free, free to access, and free to process. So the the economists were really thinking of uh, humans as supercomputers, like uh, with this huge, you know, you could have this huge bank of perfect information, uh, processing information was super fast, etc. And that only, obviously, we are not supercomputers, so that's that's not right. So if you think that there is a cost of acquiring information and maybe a cost of processing information, then right away you find that there is a trade-off. Uh, you know, it's, 
if you face a problem, you don't know, let's say, I tell you, do you want, you have to choose for, you want to buy a car. And you, you're deciding between two types of car. Maybe you have a more family car, maybe a more sports car, and you have to think about, you know, the pro and cons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be hesitating because you don't know which option is going to be the best for you in the future. So you try, so you may try to look for information by reading magazines, asking friends who may have one of, one of the cars, uh, talking with your partner, if, you know, the family experiences involved, et cetera. Maybe you can simulate in your head, you know, what would be your experience in the future with different cars. But as you gather this information, your confidence, uh, between the two options, you know, you may get more and more confident that one option is better, but you will never be a hundred percent sure because you can't perfectly anticipate the future. So at some point, you have to accept uh, the fact of making a decision, even though you're not a hundred percent sure. Okay, and so this is a trade-off. At some point, there's you know you have learned a lot, and you could learn even more, but you're not going to spend your time reading magazines about cars when what you want to be is driving a car. Okay. And so at some point you need to make the decision. And that's very simple trade-off explains that uh, we are going to make mistakes. And, and it's actually rational to make mistakes because it's not, it's not worth it spending too much time trying to make zero mistakes. You know, you, you would be like blocked. You would not make yeah. any decision. So a key insight here is that, um, yes, we are going to make mistakes. And in a way there must be a kind of optimal proportion of mistakes, which is the right thing to, to do. Uh, in order not to spend too much time uh, and in order to be able to make decisions. Yeah, this, this kind of, this kind of leads into uh, the next question I have, which is uh, you talk about it in the, in the the third part of the book about um, how do we understand game theory uh, for human behavior? And you talk about various different things. Um, So obviously I had on the podcast, uh, the authors of the book Hidden Games, is that right? Uh, it's uh, Moshe Hoffman and uh, uh, Erez uh, Ueli. Um, good guys, really good guys. Great book. And um, and we talked a lot about you know game theory and Nash equilibrium and all of these things. And and uh, they talked about the behavior side of things. And so we <clears throat> we don't have to rehash all of that. We can mention it here just just as a reminder. But I guess you bring up the idea of game theory. So you can just kind of remind us, you know, what that is, but how that works here for fairness and that, and that there are, there are fairness norms that, that are existing within groups of people. And so when you're making these decisions, these things become important and there's these, you know, trade-offs and there's these costs and benefits. I guess the question here is, especially now, I mean, I think we generally, uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, making this a little bit more specific here in general. We think about, you know, I think as a human condition, if you will, we like some sense of fairness, that fairness norms are important. But I would I would push that a little bit further. You can tell me what you think. That what I see with the current generation, the uh, the Gen Zs, if you will, um, that they really care. I mean, this is a central value for, for the current generation, this idea of fairness and justice. And not that it wasn't for previous generations, but that they're going to choose the jobs they want to do. If there's a sense of fairness, that they're going to get into certain careers or go into certain programs for academics, if there's some kind of fairness. So, you know, that's a more of a kind of a current applied sense, but just in general, how do we understand fairness? Why the fairness norms are important and, and how can game theory with these, 
kind of these these costs um, and trade offs. How can they, you know, how can this help us understand this idea of fairness that's important for for all of us and and, and maybe a little bit more for for some generations? Yeah, excellent question. I think that fairness is some, the sense of fairness is something very intuitive. Uh, you know, when you have kids, one of the first thing they start saying, you know, when they start growing up is it's unfair. That's not fair. That's not fair. Why does he get, you know, more cookies or why does he get a toy and I don't, or that one's bigger or, you know, whatever. It's not fair. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And as you said, you know, so you start there very early on. So it means something to the kids, even though I'm sure you have not given them, you know, lectures in political philosophy, right? So <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and at the same time, as you said, it plays a huge role in political life, and you know people demonstrate, people and uh, participate to social causes uh, when they think it's unfair. So it's a big thing, uh, and I think it's one of the most interesting and insightful aspects of economics and game theory that you know we can pretty much credibly unpack all that and make sense about what is fairness, where does it come from, why do we have this sense of fairness, etc. And you know if for the uh, people who are interested in it, I think it's one of, the, if they don't know about it, that's one of the things I think which is the most eye-opening reading the book. And, you know, by all means, in the book, I mostly kind of um, put together intuitions which are, like, been proposed, you know, by, I mean, and, and for a long time and and and, and growingly uh, to explain that. But I, I think I put it in a succinct way which makes, which is easy to access. So it's, it may be not a short story to, to explain why we have fairness, or maybe I would, I'm not sure how I would say it very succinctly, but um, maybe we could start with the prisoner's dilemma. I think maybe people, a lot of people know the prisoner's dilemma. Mm -hmm. uh, and the prisoner's dilemma is this idea that we, cooperation is not simple. Um, so the prisoner's dilemma is, uh, so game theory, maybe you, you asked me whether I should say a few things about game theory. Game theory is, is a study of people interacting with each other and what would be the best way of behaving when you try to behave in the best way given what other people are doing. But, but the problem is that these other people are also trying to solve the same problem. They are trying to behave in the best way given what they think you are doing. So you've got this kind of problem of feedback. You know, you 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 try to you know, uh, do the best thing relative to what they do, but given that you know that they try to do the best thing given what you do, so it looks like you have this infinite, infinite regress, yeah. which could be impossible to solve. Mm -hmm. And uh, a key idea that you mentioned in the notion of Nash equilibrium is that um, is this concept that you can actually have solutions to these kind of problems. And a Nash equilibrium is a situation where we both do something and neither of us has an interest to switch. And so if we are in a situation like that, where neither of us have an interest to switch, then we can be locked up and the, situa the situation is going to be stable. So we can continue our life and just do that. So what I've said is very abstract. So I'll, I'll start with a very simple example of Nash equilibrium that we play every day. Yeah. So, you know, in the US or most of the world, not in Australia, I must say, but in most <laughs> of the world, people drive on the right of the road. Okay. And nobody in their right mind would decide that today they want to drive on the left in a country when you drive on the right, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because it's a Nash equilibrium. Given that you know that everybody else is driving on the right, you want to drive on the right, okay? Right. It's not that the right is better. Indeed, mm -hmm. you know, like in the UK or in Australia, people drive on the left. Mm -hmm. And if you are like me in Australia, in the morning when you drive to work, 
you drive on the left because you expect other people to drive on the left and that would be very bad idea to drive on the left. And so we are locked in this kind of situation where nobody has any interest to change and maybe there's nothing special about, especially good about this situation, but it's just a situation where uh, I do the best given what you do, you right. do the best given what you do, and then, you know, it's compatible. Right, right. So you have this key idea of, of Nash equilibrium. Uh, and the prisoner's dilemma is this game when we find that, unfortunately, often cooperation doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the, the, the usual example takes use prisoners, but my favorite example is, is a variant of the prisoner dilemma when you have um, uh, gangsters exchanging suitcases in a, in a public space. So you can think that there are two gangsters. One is one, one to, sell, to sell diamonds, and the other one wants to bring a suitcase with uh, uh, banknotes. Mm-hmm. So because they are gangsters, they can't sign a contract, they can't... Um, do a proper transactions. They have to do this kind of covert exchange, yeah. and they can't check on the when they do the exchange that the suitcase contains the proper uh, content. So um, they have to exchange the suitcase and go their own way. So now, if you consider this thing, and let's say they have to do it only once, well, there is an obvious problem: is that if I if I want if I'm the one selling the diamonds, why don't I just bring an empty suitcase? You know, maybe with um, some stones, which are worthless, and and get the suitcase of the other gangster full of banknotes. That would be an all win for me. But then, if you take the position of the other other one who wants the diamonds, why does he not doesn't bring a suitcase full of uh, newspapers instead of banknotes mm-hmm. and take my suitcase full of diamonds? Mm-hmm. And you can show that actually, uh, given this problem, you only have one Nash equilibrium in these kind of situations, which is that both gangsters bring nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's that's the only stable thing because if you were, you know, if it was between you and me and I'm bringing, I have to bring the diamonds and you have to bring the, the money, if I know that you bring the money, well, I have an interest to switch and not bring anything. Okay, so it's not a, it's not a stable situation. It's not a Nash equilibrium. So one of the big problems which kind of is illustrated with this um, dilemma is that the two gangsters would like, actually, they would prefer to exchange a thing. So they would prefer for both of them to exchange a diamond to, to, to the money because that's why they started maybe talking about this exchange. They prefer that to the situation where there is no exchange. But because of the structure of the incentives in this game, they will end up doing nothing. And so there won't be any cooperation. And the cooperation is a situation like they, everybody would want to be there, but eventually because we're a bit selfish, we will end up not cooperating. So that's that's the dilemma. So now that's a key intuition from this uh, prisoner's dilemma thing. But this is only the case when I gave an example where that would happen only once. Now imagine that uh, these two gangsters uh, decide to to do a weekly trade. Every week on Sunday, they were going to meet and exchange suitcases. Then now very quickly, you can get the intuition that um, maybe they would be able to to cooperate then, because if on one week you know I, I play this game with you and I, I need to bring the diamonds, if one week I, I take I decide to to bring an empty suitcase and I take your your banknotes, well surely you know you you're not going to come back next week and the week after etc. You mean you know you're not going to continue bringing the banknotes when I'm not bringing the diamonds, and so right. by taking advantage of you in, today, 
I'm going to lose the opportunity of all the gains from cooperation in the future. And this, this risk of losing cooperation in the future is, is going to act as a kind of um, uh, enforcing cooperation in the present. So that's a key idea, uh, a key idea from game theory, which was, you know, uh, found broadly in the 50s by many uh, economists. And, and from that, then, is born the idea that when we have repeated interactions, when we have repeated op opportunities of cooperation, then it can become very rational to cooperate and to have this kind of uh, together, you know, like, I, if I know that you want to cooperate, I want to cooperate. We have reciprocity. A key idea from game theory. So that's, what, that's a big piece of the puzzle. We have actually, it is rational to cooperate. Now then we, once you have this big piece of the puzzle, how do you go to fairness? Well, the next step is to think, well, there's plenty of ways we could cooperate. Okay. Uh, how, and, and so we need to find one way to cooperate among the different ways of cooperating. So I'm going to give you another example, uh, another situation. Let's say that, you know, you and me, we, every day we cooperate in the office, uh, in our organizations. And, and we write projects and we write reports and whatever. whatever. Uh, and we gain from this cooperation because we're productive, et cetera. Then the next question is, we gain from, we, we create a pie from this cooperation, we create gains. And how do we split this pie? How, how do we share the gains from cooperation? Uh, if you were on a farm, for instance, and you work with your neighbor uh, on a farm or with somebody on a farm, how do you split the surplus of crop that you have from having cooperated? One solution would be that every day we, we bargain. Uh, you know, I say, well, you know, today I did that much, you did that much. Uh, that's the way we should split the gains from our cooperation. And, and, and we disagree and, and we have to haggle all the time. But you realize that if we were to haggle all the time when we cooperate together, there would be a lot of maybe friction, a lot of cost spent uh, haggling. Um, and so... A natural solution which can emerge is that we have, among the many different ways to cooperate, we can call, we can have kind of fairness norms can emerge as a way to naturally agree and coordinate our beliefs and our expectations to know how we should coordinate. And these fairness norms, they actually act as a Nash equilibrium. That is, if you and me, we know how we expect to split the gains from cooperation, then we can agree without having to fight. And then we don't have an interest to chant because if we if we deviate, then you know the cooperation breaks down. And so that's fairness norms can be seen as a Nash equilibrium among the many different ways we cooperate. It's it's one way for us to uh, agree of cooperating, benefiting from cooperation, and continuing uh, without having frictions. All of that tracks. I guess the one thing I'm curious about here is on the cooperation. So you can make a distinction if you want between cooperation and and you know how that might be from interdependence, right? There's there's different kinds of there's a nuance there, um, but you know cooperation has a dark side to it. Yeah, people can cooperate for for negative reasons, and sometimes. Fairness is not the motivating piece here. Sometimes, or many times, the threat of punishment, I mean, it's plenty of good research on this, right? The threat of punishment or punishment itself is a big motivator to cooperate, right? And there's and, and that's a kind of a darker side, but then people will cooperate to do really bad things to other people or to other entities, et cetera. And so sometimes it's not always connected to fairness. And there is a kind of darker side of cooperation. Where do you find this kind of fitting in here 
Okay, so once again, you know, like it's it's hard to very very succinctly answer all these things because it, because it's a very rich question. But I think I can say a few things, uh, hopefully, which which uh, uh, address um, hopefully clearly the question. Uh, first thing you talk about punishment. And in a way, punishment has to be here. It has to be a recipe, a part of the recipe of, of fairness and cooperation. Yeah. If you think that fairness is an equilibrium of the game, it has to be, it is stable. So we cooperate and we have these norms of fairness, which ensure that we cooperate. But for them to be equilibria uh, and, and stable, it means that if you deviate, you need to pay a, a cost. So, and part of the cost is punishment. Uh, and punishments can be wide. You know, we may think of punishment as somebody, some people getting out of their way to punish people, but even withdrawing cooperation is a punishment. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, if we work in the same organization, and and one day I do something which is not nice to you, well, maybe next time I need your help, you will just you will not, just not be here. You know, or, um, or you will not be willing, you know, or maybe you will not call me when you have an opportunity to collaborate and to do something. And that, in a way, is a punishment. So, but if I deviate from the norm of fairness, and and you and you know you realize that, then you can withdraw cooperation. And it's a, for me, there's a cost of of deviating, which means that I'm going to be, and that would be intuitive to listeners. We are very aware of this risk, right? We want part of the reason we are very careful of being fair is because we know that if we are not other people will be unhappy and they will react. You know, it's not a free fall. It's like people are not pushovers. And because people are not pushovers, that uh, uh, ensures that we have an interest to follow the norm. Interestingly, you know, these norms, they can be different across different societies. Um, The key is that we all share these norms. So if we all agree on the norm, um, that's what makes it effective as a way to coordinate uh, actions and for people to cooperate. And it's interesting you said, there is a dark side of fairness. In a way, there, there, maybe I could say there's two ways in, in, in which you could say there is a dark side of fairness. One is that there's nothing which says, the, the, this explanation doesn't say anything about the fact that the content of these norms of fairness is good. You could imagine societies, in particular societies in the past, where norms of fairness, what was perceived as the right way of doing things, was very unequal, very that people in modern days would find very unfair. Uh, you would have societies when you have maybe uh, racial differences between people or gender differences between people that people nowadays would think is very unfair and, and very unjust. But if you were to step in the past, that would be the norms uh, that people between different classes, for instance, or different groups would commonly share about that's the right way of interacting. You know, if you watch a costume drama from, uh, you know, uh, the 18th century, you'll see how poorly some people in uh, of lower classes can be treated and and you know they would they would have the expectation in a way of being treated like that not maybe that they always like it but that because that's the way things are done in that society and that that's the expectation that you have so people from lower classes in that case would be uh, uh pretty much upset if they are treated worse than these norms at the time um uh where so there is nothing which is that these norms have to be good relative to what we think is good that's the one first thing and the other thing is that uh, there is nothing which says that uh this cooperation has to be good even um in, in a very general sense so if you look at um uh, so, some some of the cooperation can happen in groups uh which pursue bad motives of motives which right. we, we is that right, 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 right. If you look at the Godfather, for instance, you know the movie. Uh, 
Don Corleone is a big reciprocator. Is is you know is for fairness. So mm-hmm. if you are giving uh, granting him favors, he's going to grant you favors. He's going to try to do the right thing, quote unquote, the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has this kind of community of reciprocity where they exchange gifts. But yep. obviously, when you look from outside from the society, you know that's that works from this small community. But there, there are costs for society at large. Mm-hmm. So there is nothing which says that cooperation has to be good. It's just an ex- a general explanation. And 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 which can work sometimes to be good at the social level, but sometimes it can explain corruption, mafia, mm-hmm. etc. It can also explain that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's, I think that's the important point. I mean, sometimes we 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 put too much moral topspin on some of these concepts because we like them or because we like how they may may benefit us. So, for example, you know, many people talk about empathy, 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 and and you know, empathy is fine, but you know, empathy is not you know. It's not a holy water of sorts where you just, you know, you just spray empathy on people and everything's, you know, better. I mean, empathy is, has got, you know, there, there are pros and cons to it, right? And, and I think that there's different types of empathy and, and a certain type of theory of mind you need to have for it and, you know, so on and so forth. I feel like cooperation is also the same way, right? People are talking about, well, we just got to be a you know, cooperative society and the, you know, the positive aspects of humanity. And th- that's true. I mean, I'm not denying that, but there's also these you know, we can also cooperate to do really terrible things to each other as well. And, and, and so it's not, it's not a, it's not a panacea, right? And we, 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 we make these moral attributions about things uh, for neutral concepts or concepts that could fit in, in a, you know, quote unquote, positive or negative uh, cycle here. So the, the, the one big thing I want to ask you about here, many, many other things I could talk to you about from, from the, the third and, and fourth parts of your book. But the one kind of the last big kind of topic here is you talk about <clears throat> uh, beliefs, which I think is really important. It's really interesting, you know, how we have beliefs, how we maintain them, how we don't change our our minds on them. You know, we get stuck and we put all these things into them. So you, you can tell us about the differences between first and second order beliefs, but then also about how we have delusional beliefs, uh, the importance of self-delusion, these biased beliefs. So it just generally, from where you're coming from in the book, how do you see the role that beliefs have, again, first or second order beliefs, and 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 some of the kind of nuance with the, the different, um, you know, flavors of beliefs? Yeah, so that, I guess, are two different things. Um, the um, the first thing, uh, maybe I, I, I would start with the uh, the the question about like um, how we form our beliefs. Um, to when we talked about evolution before, I mean to 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 survive and to make good decisions in a way, you need to have beliefs about the world which are not too mistaken. Right? If I believe that I'm a very good swimmer and I can just jump in the river and everything will be fine, and it's not true, well, it's not going to be fine, and, and there will be consequences, negative consequences. Right. So, uh, you know, when you make decisions, whether you want to challenge somebody, uh, whether to go to do something risky, etc., you need to have a pretty good appreciation about the likely consequences of your action, mm-hmm. and, and your beliefs need to be fairly accurate. But uh, there is something which we need to be very careful when we think about how we form our beliefs, is that um, it's very unlikely that evolution would have uh, selected us to have like perfect beliefs. If you think about, you know, science, people looking at the stars and wondering whether they are like 
planets or gods, etc. Well, there would be very small, very limited selection for making the right decisions here. Because what are the costs of thinking that, you know, you've got people living in the sky versus having a proper view that these are just, you know, uh, uh, bodies moving uh, because there are laws of nature. So the, there, there would not be a selection for us to have a very scientific mind and find the true laws of nature. Uh, where there would be selection, though, is for us to be convincing. So if you think about, you know, um, when you try to argue with people and try to form beliefs, what's important is for you, we, we are social beings, for you to be good at convincing other people. So uh, the kind of questions that we would have to solve is, I would like to, I would need to convince you that, you know, I'm a good person, you should cooperate with me. I'm a strong person, you should be my partner in the coalition. Uh, maybe I'm a very good uh, uh, potential mate. You should marry me. You know that's that's the kind of thing. So when I try to when you when our ability to reason was selected, this what this would be the selection pressure it would face. And and the key insight here, which was uh, proposed in particular by uh, Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier, two psychologists, is that this means that we would not have been selected to think like scientists, but more to think like lawyers. That is, we have a cause to defend. And that explains a lot of features about how we reason. Why often we reason very poorly, in a very biased way, and of and why we form beliefs which can be systematically biased. Because we don't form beliefs in a way. We're not designed to form beliefs to be true. Uh, truth is good, but truth is a kind of byproduct of the fact that we we act as lawyers. Lawyers can't can't say something which is completely untrue. So if you have a lawyer and the lawyer presents a case which is completely inconsistent. The lawyer is not going to win the case. So you need to be to be convincing. You need to be somewhat consistent. It needs to be somewhat in line with the evidence. And the better you're able to line up the evidence in a coherent way, the more convincing you're going to be. But, you know, as a lawyer, you don't have to present the whole truth. You, you're free to, you know, hide a few things or to don't play some things, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way we argue. And I think listeners will have the intuition that when we argue with other people, you don't argue in a very neutral way where you just uh, impartially look for the truth. Usually you want to win the argument. And, and, and that's the kind of psychology we have. And that leads to, to, to things that not only we try to convince people, but maybe to convince other people, it's even better when we are convinced ourselves. You know, it helps us being more convincing. And so there is a lot of evidence from psychology and, and behavioral economics that indeed uh, the way we form our beliefs can be systematically systematically biased in a self-serving way. So I think I'm better than I am. Uh, people think they're a better driver, that they are uh, smarter, that they are nicer than they are, etc. And having these beliefs may, may make them better at convincing others that it is the case, and they may, it may make them better lawyers of their own causes. And so these insights tell us that uh, we should not expect its people to be very accurate and 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 having good beliefs which which are which are true, et cetera, we should expect systematic biases, and that explains a lot of things in the world that oh, yeah. you know we see today, like about like uh, why people uh, why people look at fake news and 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 retweet fake news, et cetera, et cetera. Well, because you know we're not designed to be scientists, but more like lawyers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right. Is that we we have these ideas and we get we get very attached to to our beliefs and and it's very hard 
and they're helpful and we need them but sometimes we can we can go too far one way all of us can do it i've done it i'm sure you've done it we all do it at some point and and it's important to have some type of um you know kind of reservations or to be very cautious about about some of those things so i figured the, the last question here to to kind of end on is you wrote a book about how we can be um you know, rational, we can avoid, you know, bad irrationality. So I guess the, the question, the last question here is, is how can rationality help improve us as who we are and, and how we connect with other people? And what are some of the dangers of irrationality? Well, very good question. So um, look, I think when you, we learn a lot about people, we're not as rational as economists thought, you know, uh, initially. The, the, the model that, a good way of ca- characterizing the model that economists had in mind in the, you know, 20th century, in the 70s or 80s, is a bit like Mr. Spock. Somebody who is not nasty, but is very, you know, unemotional, very smart and and, and good at making mathematics, etc. But it's not really a human. Uh, so, so the psychologists have kind of brought back uh, many layers of uh, subtlety in behavior that was missing from Mr. Spock. You know, we have emotions, we care about other people, um, sometimes we make mistakes, etc. So we have much better understanding. Uh, I think the perspective that when we don't just focus on the fact that we can make mistakes, but we can try to understand why, that can help us, I think, um, advise better how can we improve things. And I think there's there's a few things where, for instance, we you know, we talk about evolution and and some of the reasons we behave the way we do is due to the kind of problems that our ancestors had to face in the past. And so there are good solutions to past problems. But there are a lot of things that we, that characterize the present, which are very, very different from the past. You know, like uh, the, the modern times, the characteristics of modern times when we live in um, fairly impersonal urban spaces uh, is, is really, really unusual. And our brain has not been uh, uh, trained or designed to solve these problems. And so there will be systematic mismatch in, in some of the way we proceed, uh, uh, which is going to lead to uh, inefficiencies and costs. And so if we are aware of that, maybe we can fight against it. So I can give you a few examples. One example, for instance, is that... Uh, in the past, the, the, the social horizon, your, the life horizon was much shorter. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, 2,000 years ago, even 500 years ago, you didn't have banks which tell you, you know, when you're 20, you can book, put the money in the bank. And most likely, not for sure, but most likely you'll get the, ba- you'll get the money back in 40 years with interest. <laughs> so this is not something that is easy for us to kind of intuitively process. I mean, we can, you know, understand it, but it's not something where our intuitions have been uh, calibrated to handle that easily. Uh, and another th- problem that we have is um, that the past was much more conflictual. Yeah, when you look yeah. at the past, you know, uh, the, the a very frequent way of solving conflict was actually, you know, murder or death. Right. Uh, yeah. in, and in small societies, there is not a police uh, and a rule of law. Uh, if you are disagreeing with your a neighbor because you think he has taken something from you, you know, next thing you know, he could be killing you or next thing you know, you're killing you and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, it's easy for us now to, in the kind of life we live in modern societies, to underappreciate how peaceful 
and how unusually peaceful our modern times are. Yeah. Like uh, when you look at uh, societies uh, closer to the societies of our ancestors, like you have something, I don't have exact numbers, but I think something like a third of people have been, have been part of a, a, a murder uh, at some point or something like that, or have been victim of a murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is huge. And but what it means, that it means that also that all social emotions may not be uh, calibrated for the kind of peaceful time we are now. Yeah. And so, you know, let's say you and me, we work in an organization and it can be a very basic situation where we work in the same firm. And today you do something which annoys me. Okay. Well, maybe our emotions are not calibrated to think that we're going to work in these firms many, many more years together. And the right way of solving this problem is to, you know, uh, go over our disagreements and cooperate because the gains that we have from corporations are important. And instead of that, we may have emotional reactions which are a bit uh, calibrated for the kind of situations our ancestors face, where maybe one of the solutions was that, you know, at night one of us is going to come and try to kill the other one. And so we can have these kind of uh, high emotional reactions uh, which are are kind of calibrated to handle this kind of conflict, level of conflict, which are not present now. And so when you look at modern times, you know, you talked about uh, uh, the situations and the situation in the U.S., not just in the U.S., but in the U.S., the moment is very conflictual and, and, and passions and emotions are often heightened and you can see that people want to fight. And, and, and you know, maybe the level of, uh, maybe this is kind of the level of conflictuality that we see in emotions uh, emerge as a consequence of, of the fact that our emotions are kind of calibrated to react to a higher level than what is necessary or, or, or maybe good to just work out in a modern society. Mm-hmm. So when you have that, I guess one insight is you, it may be good to decrease the level of conflictuality to try to, you know, counterbalance this kind of, of, of sometimes overreactions uh, because they are not good solutions to handle the conflicts that we have nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, I agree. I think it's, there's this idea that we have, you know, I've, I've talked to a few people about this, but that we have these, you know, these stone age brains in modern times still, and and that we're, we've updated and we've made a lot of progress, but at the same time, you know, it was so many thousands of years where we did things one way and then we really, how we've been doing things for the past 100 years, maybe not even, you know, maybe just that, you know, it's so small compared to all the things we've been doing for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. And that's going to take some time to try and really calibrate how we want to do things more. You know, hopefully we won't. I mean, obviously there's people in different parts of the world that are still fighting in this conflict, but you know, not at the nearly at the scale it was in you know the Middle Ages or whatever. Um, so I think all of that is 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 super helpful and super important to to continue to remind ourselves. And obviously that's what what your book does. Um, again, the book is called Optimally Irrational: The Good Reasons We Behave the Way We Do. Uh, it's uh, fantastic. I highly recommend people for uh, to to go out and get it. And um, where can people uh, find your find yourself, whether online or, or anywhere else? What's the best ways to get at you? Yeah, well, I happen to be on Twitter, so you know, Twitter a few things from time to time. So uh, people are most uh, welcome to come and and follow me if they're interested. And otherwise, yeah, they can get the books in in online or in their library i guess it's available there oh that's that's great yeah i definitely hope people do uh you know this is uh it's been such a such a fun conversation so wonderful you have this just kind of 
treasure trove of information that's just so so wonderful to to listen to i really enjoyed again reading the book but really hearing you kind of flesh out the ideas uh so clearly and and ways that I can, even for myself that's not an economist, can grasp it. So I, I appreciate the work you're doing and, and your, your time here. And it was, it was, it was, it was wonderful. It's a really, really wonderful conversation. So I'm really grateful. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Thanks. Okay. Thank you.